I was an army chaplain. My soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where um, I try to do that today. I somehow cut off the recording of the scripture reading from Revelation 21 through 22, verse 5, the end of chapter 21 through 22, 5. And I started off with talking about the book of life. I was leading up to this thing about the book of life and using the movie Arrival. If you've seen the movie Arrival, it's pretty old. I won't, I will spoil the plot because it's old and you could have seen it all these years, but you haven't. So I'm going to spoil the plot um, here in my little sermon about how um, this story that is was originally a short story by Ted Chiang, um, which I, he's an author I love, and I'd seen the movie first, and then I read the short story and thought, oh, that's the movie. I didn't know that. And the, the story is called The Story of Your Life. That's what the movie is based on, these aliens that visit, and they have a very different language where time happens all at once for these aliens. And um, their language reflects that, that reality, whereas our language has to follow a linear storyline ta- story from start to finish. Theirs is very different, and that's sort of the premise of the movie, but also the premise of the short story, which is also plays into the book of life that's in Revelation 21. So that's the connection that you might have missed if the recording got, got cut off there. But um, blessings. Um, and so the aliens are... Um, unlike us who are living that linear time pattern, the aliens in the story of your life or in the movie Arrival are in fact experiencing all the moments of time all together, all at once. Um, they, because their language happens all at once, they have learned to see time happening all at once. Um, so the big question comes towards the end of the story is, why would the aliens talk to us at all? if they know everything that's going to happen. Um, and the illustration that is brought in is when you when you read a story to a child and you mix up the words or you say it wrong or you get bored with the same book you've read to them every night for the last year and you change up some details and say, um, you know, good night, asparagus, good night, broccoli, um, and good night, moon, they get mad at you and say, that's not the real story. You're changing it. Read the real story. And you say, well, if you know the real story, why don't you read it to me? And they say, no, I want to hear the story. Because even though it's a story I've heard a hundred times, I really like it. And even though I know it exactly what happens, I really like it. And there are stories like that. And the story of salvation, the story that is recorded in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the story of prophecy, the story of the fall of Adam and Eve falling from God's grace, falling into this self-destruction and the destruction of the environment and others in their sin. And then the promise that somebody will be sent, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And then the God revealing himself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, God revealing God's self to Moses and Miriam, the people of Israel and people of God, delivering from Egypt. All these salvation moments are happening and they 
culminate in the moment of the fullness of time. The fullness of time, God sent Jesus, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those under the law, the New Testament says. And so in the fullness of time, when time had reached its moment of fullness, when in some ways, when time had stopped being so linear and had everything happening all at once, this experience of God in Jesus, in the incarnation, is really a limiting of God's power. Philippians 2, a passage we'll read on Christmas Eve, I think, is um, about Jesus emptying himself um, to become human, to become one of us on this planet, to die like one of us, and to rise again like all of us one day will. Ultimately, God is confined in human flesh in Jesus's life, um, but also not confined in human flesh. In fact, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in Jesus, according to the writings of the New Testament, that God was just as much full in Jesus as God is in the stars of the sky, in the heavens, in the mighty oceans, in the tornadoes and storms of life. Like all these visual um, representations of God that are majestic and huge and glorious was fully contained in the life of this baby in Bethlehem, this young man who grows up in, in um, Galilee and in, in Nazareth, and the, ultimately the, the man who hung on the cross for our sins, contained in him the fullness of God. And that was not in any way limited. The expression of God's power was certainly limited, and Jesus did not use the power of God um, except to do good, to, 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 um, to save lives and do healing, miracles, and things like that. But ultimately, um, the power of God was not a big light and laser show. God, the power of God in Jesus was not a big fireworks show. In fact, when they tried to get him to do tricks for them, uh, he wouldn't do them. Jesus' miracles were focused on manifesting the signs of who he was so that you'd know who he was as the Messiah and also to care for people, which all of Jesus' healings, again and again, it's repeated, they were done to be a sign so that people would believe in him. But ultimately, in his healings of physical illnesses and maladies and diseases that were happening in his own lifetime, they were a sign pointing to the deeper healing of the whole universe in the redemption of the world through Jesus Christ. That promise that was made in the garden Adam and Eve, that this curse, this fall that they were experiencing would someday be reversed. That is what is happening in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The curse of death, the curse of destruction, the curse of the ending of our time together um, is ultimately done away with in the life of Jesus. So in that moment, in the, as Jesus inhabits or is, is indwelled by the Godhead bodily, and experiences God very much in a personal way, and we experience God through Jesus, all of this is happening all at once. That God does live outside of time. Time is a created object in Scripture. It's created the morning. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Someone in my running group asked me today, why is Christmas Eve such a big deal? And uh, why don't... Why is it at Eve? Like, what's going on there? 
And um, I said, I know they don't tell you this stuff at church, but babies are born at midnight. They're born at night a lot. And if uh, and, he said, and the guy says, is that really still true? And I said, I think it's kind of true. I mean, if there's not like a lot of, you know, inducements of labor and things, I think statistically there's probably more babies born at night as long as there's not a lot of, you know, timing interventions. I know physicians often prefer to have babies born during the day. So they induce p- women and people that are pregnant like at the time where they will have the baby during the day, allegedly, but babies are unpredictable. And um, I think a lot of deaths happen at night, statistically speaking. Um, There is a sense of birth and death being things that you kind of have to hide away. You don't want to be fully in public for. Um, Certainly in the animal kingdom, babies are born hidden away in the dark because you don't want predators coming in there and grabbing the babies, you know, of the of the mama. And so most mammals will have um, their young in the quiet and secrecy and safety of, of a hidden place. Um, so it is with death um, in similar ways that we want to be sort of off the main scene when that happens. Um, and so night is a good, good time for that, just in our own bodily rhythms of what is safe. And that, that does give me comfort that, um, that those very natural processes of death do will happen and often in the quiet of the night. Um, but ultimately, that is something that Jesus came to do away with, is even that pain of death and the pain of childbirth and all those things that accompany those life-risky experiences. But um, we were talking, and I said, you know, babies are born at night, and if Jesus is born on the 25th of December, for him to have that as his birthday... Um, he has to be born on the day. And in, in the Bible, the day starts in the evening. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 record the creation of the world. And it says very clearly, there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then the next thing God created on the second day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And the third day, God created a bunch of stuff. There was evening and there was morning the third day. And that's the pattern of, of the Bible day is evening is when the day begins and, um, you know, it ends when the sun goes down the next day. That's why the Sabbath observances of Jewish people today start on the eve, Friday evening, sundown, and uh, end on Saturday evening. Have you ever been in Jerusalem on a Saturday night at about sundown? The streets erupt in great joy and revelry as young people go out to party after the Sabbath, um, because you can't really do that during the Sabbath time for the most part. So, and our Christian holidays are the same way. We still, as Christians, we observe the evening and then the morning as the first day. Um, So Sunday starts on Sunday, Saturday night, and Christmas Eve starts at the eve of Christmas, at sundown the day before Christmas, because that is when Christmas actually starts, the day. If he's born on that day, that's when he's born. Sometime at night or during the day, but not. He's not born on the 25th after 7 p.m. Because that's the 26th now. <laughs> We're on the next day already. So the, the work of the incarnation happens um, in this nighttime, this um, time of, of safety and even, and even um, darkness. And yet the sky is lit up with the 
shouts of angels, the Gloria, they're singing, and we'll sing that on Christmas Eve together. Um, we're going to do the extended version of the Gloria, angels we have heard on high. Gloria in excelsis Deo, Gloria, you know that one, um, for the Gloria, because it's extra, and we want to add all that stuff in. But this is the, um, this is the way time uh, works in heaven, the time of heaven. And this is ultimately how time can work for us a little bit today. When we are tasting the Eucharist, when we are experiencing communion, we are experiencing both the first communion in the upper room with Jesus on the night he was betrayed, and we are experiencing the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of the world when we will all feast together in the heavenly banquet. That is all happening at once, and you are in the middle of all that when you're taking the Eucharist. The, the time is a created thing. God can work through time. Um, ultimately, like that is not a thing that God really experiences fully, um, this thing called time. So God is not separated from the first Eucharist. God is not separated from the, the wedding banquet that is yet to come for us. Um, that is all happening at once for God. And so why does God involve God's life with us? Why did Jesus come to talk to people? Um, why is that happening? Well, just because you know how a story goes doesn't mean you still don't tell it. You tell the story to the kid because the kid wants to hear a good story. And ultimately, that is what we are living out on this earth. We're living out the story of God. Um, the story of love, the story of God's love for, for people, which is full of twists and turns. Um, as we said, when the avian Rebbe was here, there was a rabbi um, who did say, God created the world, or God created humans because God loves stories. And we have plenty of stories in our life, stories that don't make any sense, stories that we are, try to make sense of. That's one thing we do in therapy, is we go to therapy and we try to make sense of our stories even how we tell a story should tell us a lot about what we feel and think about a certain event. Go take a, take a part of your life and tell a story about it, maybe to yourself or to your therapist or even to a friend who will listen, um, or to me or whatever, and just think about how you tell that story. What are the negatives? What are the positives? What do you highlight? What's the main takeaway from that experience? Um, it'll tell you a lot about how you feel. Um, about the other person in that story or the other people. How we tell those stories is very important. So this story of our salvation that happens in Revelation ultimately ends with this glory, this, um, this glory. But it's all about those who are written in the book of life, the chapter closes. And again, that is the book of the story of your life and the story of all lives. Um, there's the book of life and then there's a the book of your life. And that, um, that that story is one written by God. And it's written with your involvement. And I think if we could all open that book and have a choice, we probably wouldn't. We would say, no, I want to live in that story. So every day we have this opportunity to live in that story for the first time, to really experience our lives for the first time ever. Because um, the experiences you're going to have today you've never had before. Even if you're drinking out of the same cup, coffee cup you had yesterday, drinking the same brand of coffee, doing the same morning prayer with the same people, 
This is a totally different story than yesterday. And we have to tell ourselves that because life can get kind of monotonous and bleak. That's one reason we have holidays is to remind each other, remind ourselves that God's life breaks into our life all the time and that we ought to wait for that. Advent is a time of waiting for God to show up in a new way in our life, to reveal the things that God needs to tell us and to like help us live into that bigger story that God is calling us into. Um, you can't make this stuff up. God doesn't want to make up this stuff with you. God has already written the story for our lives in the book of life. And so we see this river. We see this street in the middle of the city. We see the tree of life. Here we are back in the Garden of Eden where God put the tree of life in the middle of the garden. And then the tree of the knowledge and good of knowledge of good and evil. They were they were supposed to eat from the tree of life, um, and that would give them life eternal. But don't eat from the tree of the knowledge and good of evil. And they do that. Our first parents decided it was more important to figure out what was going on with that tree. They wanted to know things, which is ultimately where all of our both blessings and curses come from. Um, our desire to know and experience things. Um, we find out that there's really only one way to experience the world, and that is to experience it. And then we find out that there's consequences to all those experiences that are sometimes beneficial to us and sometimes not. Um, and our first parents chose that over life. They chose that kind of um, testing of God rather than um, living in God's love. And that's been the human problem ever since then. We have science that is supposed to be asking these big questions and solving huge problems for us. Science has also brought us the atom bomb that has destroyed whole cities of people and could, again, do that very same thing whenever someone gets angry enough to push certain buttons. Um, so science makes our lives better, but also increases the, the rapid rate in which we can self-destruct. Um, ultimately, all these things are just part of this big lump of humanity, the ultimate lump that we got ourselves into in the Garden of Eden. So when we come to the scene in Revelation of the, this river of life and this tree of life, and the leaves of this tree of life are for the healing of the nations, um, so many medicines are found in trees. Um, I think the most famous is probably aspirin um, coming from the bark of certain trees. There's many stories of native peoples and then settlers, white European settlers that came here um, using the tree bark, the aspen or the aspirin um, tree bark that was very popular for reducing fevers. And so trees have a, a lot of medicinal qualities to them. Um, certainly um, the plant, uh, the plant, uh, awareness of certain plants being good for people is certainly part of this um, scripture verse that has been used to legalize certain plants for recreational and therapeutic use. But ultimately, this is pointing to a deeper healing that is happening in the universe. And that is the tree of life is growing again and humans can eat of it. The only reason Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden is because they would stay in their state of fallenness and sin and then eat of the tree of life and live forever. 
the way that after their sin and after the hardship that they would have to face in their lives, God said it's better that they don't live a long time. It's better that they only live like 900 years. And then eventually he shortened it to like 100 and something. And then he shortened it to like 70 or 80. Um, that's the story in the Bible anyway, um, that human lives were just too long and they couldn't be eternal because I don't want to stay in this state forever with all my failures and sadnesses and mistakes. Even though I love life and we ought to love life, there is a real hardship to life. There is a real difficulty to life, um, a real struggle in life. Nothing is ever quite completely pain-free and perfect in our lives. There's always something that kind of gets us, even in the most wonderful of circumstances and situations. So ultimately, the healing of the nations from this tree of life that is not a vampire life. Living forever in the vampire world is not a good thing. It's actually a curse. But living forever in the kingdom of God is the ultimate blessing. And we experience that here by this river for eternity. Amen. It's the 22nd of December. It's the day that the church remembers Henry Budd. Henry Budd was the first person of First Nations ancestry to be ordained in the Anglican Church in North America. First Nations is how Canadians refer to Native Americans. Um, we would say Native American here in the U.S. In Canada, they say First Nations. Um, he's remembered for his service among the Cree in Western Canada. Bud was an orphan, and the date of his birth is unknown. He entered a mission school there was a joint venture with the Hudson Bay Company to provide a Christian education to the First Nations people in the area of Rupert's land. Prince Rupert, who is the cousin of King Charles I, who is executed by Parliament for trying to uphold the, 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 the truth of the Episcopal government of the Church of England. Um, he is martyred for trying to preserve the Church of England in its current form as king, and his cousin who fights with him in the English Civil War is Prince Rupert. He's granted a huge amount of land in Canada. Um, this vast expanse of land encircled the Hudson Bay before its division into Canadian provinces. Before embarking on a vocation as a priest and teacher, Henry Budd worked as a clerk for the Hudson Bay Company. Henry Budd's ministry began as a lay teacher in the Red River region of Manitoba, where he taught at St. John's Anglican Parish School. He and his wife, Betsy, remained in the area for the next 13 years, where Bud taught school and served as a lay minister in the Anglican Church. Ordained to the priesthood on December 22, 1850, having been trained largely by personal mentoring and tutoring from other clergy, Bud was assigned to the mission at Nipiquim, where he worked as a pastor until 1867. Thereafter, Bud returned to the to the Paz, where he was put in charge of a vast area encompassing several communities, and where he continued his vocation as both priest and teacher. Records of the Church Missionary Society indicate that Bud was paid half of what white missionaries were paid on account of his race. So, you know, it's right there in black and white in the ledger books, um, the double standard for native First Nations clergy at that time. Um, 
that was a standard practice, I'm sure, at the time that everybody thought was okay. Um, it was fair. It was okay because that's probably how the economy kind of worked. Um, and we look at that today and say, that was really wrong. And I always wonder, like, um, what, what Henry thought of it and uh, what other people that knew that truth thought about that, that you could pay someone half of what the same people in the profession make simply based on race. Um, again, something of justice to consider there. Henry Budd is remembered as an eloquent speaker and writer in both Cree and English. He endeared himself to those he served by exhibiting clearly by exhibiting clearly in the living of his life the Christian principles he preached and the values he taught. Enduring among his many contributions are his translations of the scriptures and the Book of Common Prayer into the Cree language. He died in 1875. In April, just a few days after he had conducted his Easter services, he's, peri- he's buried in the Pass, Manitoba, and we remember him today. Creator of light, we offer thanks for thy priest, Henry Budd, who carried the great treasure of scripture to his people, the Cree nation, earning their trust and love. Grant that his example may call us to reverence, orderliness, and love. That we may be given, that we may give thee glory in word and action, through Jesus Christ our Savior, who with thee and the Holy Spirit liveth and reigneth, one God, forever and ever. Amen.